All right. Psalm 32, verse 12. And I want to state that this is a type of continuation. It's not necessarily part two, but it is. I'm sorry. Did I say something wrong? Psalm 33, verse 12. Everybody knows. If I say Psalm 32, I mean Psalm 33. You always add one. We have a bunch of unruly people today, I'm telling you right now. Oh, I'll tell you, a bunch of Pharisees. All right. This will be a type of continuation from last week, which was the 4th of July, on our message on politics, piety, and the future of America. It is a pressing issue. The title of this message is simply, We the People. Psalm 33, verse 12. I don't know how you people expect to make heaven. Psalm 33, 12. Very short verse, but very critical for us here in America, as it was for Israel when this was written. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is Jehovah, of course. The King James Version gives us the distinct benefit of capitalizing Jehovah's name. So when we see it in caps, we know it's Jehovah. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Very short verse, but absolutely pregnant with application and meaning for us in this period of history in which we were born in the United States of America. We, the people. Now, I'm sure that many of you, maybe most of you, have heard this little story. I heard it many, many years ago, and I thought it was good. So I'd like to bring it to you again and if you haven't heard it for the first time, let me just say that it has a direct bearing on the situation that we have in our country. It's the story of everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Now, there was an important job to be done as the story goes. Everybody was under the impression that somebody was going to do that job, but the job was never done. And so everybody blamed somebody because in reality, anybody could have did this job, but nobody did it. Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. In my mind, this represents the fundamental problem in many, many organizations that are not well run, well managed. It certainly, in my mind, applies to the church. Like, we solicit here for opportunities to minister, use your gifts, your talents, which you will be held accountable for. Me, I've always taken that seriously. I think you should too. I know you should too. In the mind of people in the church now, everybody assumes somebody's going to do it. And anybody could do most of the things that we solicit for. Not everything, but most of the things that we solicit for. I mean, cleaning the church is kind of a unique call. Some people have a more of a knack for it, but really anybody could do it. You keep your house clean. Anybody could do it. Anybody should do it. And then in the end, we find out nobody did it. How many people, I told you this, they leave a church because they don't have this ministry and they don't have that ministry. This is particularly true of younger couples and they want this and that. But when they come to a church, let me say it this way. When we left the first church my wife and I were saved in, one of the first things that I did is I said, when we go from that church, we'll already have a church. We're not going to flounder week after week. Where should we go? We're going to have a church picked out. So I did some research and we had one picked out. When I left this church, I went right to another one. Now, the condition on my end is I met with the pastor. And I sat down and I told them, Pastor, here's the situation. I'm not coming to this church unless you put me to work. Otherwise, I'm going to another church that will put me to work. Now, I'll tell you what. 
I don't know I've ever had anybody come in my office and tell me that. And we've had many fine workers over the years, but to a pastor, that's especially a growing church and a new church and a new pastor just out of Bible school, this was music to his ears. I had a youth group in the other church and it was doing really, really well. The reasons that we left that church, went right to that church, but the condition was, I'm not staying unless you put me to work. And then he would, we have a need for a group. Turns out he was praying whenever you saw my group leaving the church when he would pass by because they didn't have a youth group. So I started a youth group and it did very, very well. Well, the point here is this. When announcements are made that we need this and we need musicians and we whatever, well, of course, not anybody can play a musical instrument. Not anybody can sing. Not everybody can sing. But in most things in life, there are jobs that anybody could do. And the assumption is, by everybody, that somebody's going to do it. And in the end, far too often, the job is not done because nobody did it. With that in mind, I want to broaden that illustration to our country. You know, we're divided right down the middle, as you know, politically. And the one thing that everybody agrees on, there's something wrong with America. Everybody agrees on that. Except this side says, you're the problem, and this side says, you're the problem. And so what we find ourselves in now is a state of confusion, chaos, a measure of anarchy, and so on. It's not good. But to come back home here to the Church of Jesus Christ, we can no longer have the condition that everybody assumes somebody's going to be doing the job. Like intercessory prayer. I'm believing for many people. In fact, when I go before God, I put a 50 and a plus. And I tell God, I'm not moved by my eyes. I'm not moved by my ears. I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm not moved by what I hear. I'm only moved by what I believe. I'm only moved by what your word says when we pray to believe. And believing, we are receiving. With that being said, we cannot be in the position that everybody assumes somebody's going to be praying for the pastor, for his family, you know, take it from there, until we understand that this thing is very, very true in life. Everybody is blaming somebody for a job that anybody could have done, but nobody did it. And so we need to be like Isaiah in this hour of history, here in America especially, he didn't look around, assuming that everybody was going to respond to this call. And who shall go before us? Whom shall we send? Isaiah didn't say, somebody will do it. But while I'm here, I'm just going to praise and thank you and sing this song. And I'll see you next week at temple services. Isaiah said, here am I, send me. This is the most critical attitude by the American Christian that we need right now. We need to stop the assumption that somebody's going to do the job, then find out that everybody's complaining about somebody because anybody could have did a job, but nobody did it. This is not going to further the cause of the gospel, and this is not going to help us out in our dilemma in America. We, the people, are the government, and don't ever forget it. When you talk about the government, federal, state, whatever, say it out loud. I am the government. If you're here legally, you are the government. These people make decisions, federal level, state levels, city level, because they were voted in by the government. We are the government. But as I've stated to you before, and I think it's obvious to conclude, that a government of the people, and by the people, and for the people can only be as good as the people. And if we, and we heard this earlier, if we are not diligently seeking for Jesus Christ, we're adding to the problem. We often use the term religion as a more disparaging term. It's a term that's good. It's a good term. And in our Western culture, 
and especially in our American culture, the word religion, early on, in the founding of America, was used exclusively of Christianity, almost exclusively. For the most part, it was exclusive. We cannot be part of a religion where everybody says somebody's going to do it, a job that anybody could do, and nobody does it. As we heard this saying be attributed to the Irish-born philosopher Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men, women, for good people to do nothing. We must not, as I pointed out, subscribe to the doctrine of fatalism and determinism. Though we know God is working out a plan, I shared with you a few weeks ago that Jesus expects us to be working when he comes or when we leave. Occupy is a business term. So fatalism says the end of the world's coming or a crisis coming or whatever. That's true, the end of this world, not the end of the planet. This world will have a conclusion. We see it written. In the meantime, we are to be doing everything we can, every gift, every talent, every ounce of energy and every ounce of strength to affect the outcome here for good. I do believe there is a space of time yet remaining, however short or narrow the window may be for us to make a difference in America. It begins with personal piety. It begins with the response of Isaiah. Here am I. I mentioned to you about board meetings and business meetings last week. They usually do not produce anything except more division within the church, ordinarily. Maybe there's some good ones. I've never been at one. I've even been at annual meetings with all ministers and watched them do the exact same thing of the illustration I brought to you last week and tear down the elder. I shake my head. And it's no wonder that so many people want nothing to do with organized religion. However, the dilemma is this. If we're not organized, then here's a puzzle I bought for you. It's got a thousand pieces. I even tear off the cover, meaning you don't know exactly what it looks like. And I give it to you. It's your birthday. And I said, this is for your wall for your living room. And you don't even know what the picture looks like. And you open it up and you shake it up. And there it is. This brown cardboard on one side, a little something, or I don't know what that is over there, and this over here, then another piece of the brown, and it's shaped all like this. And you say to me, uh, well, Pastor, I appreciate this, but what am I going to do with it? And I don't even suggest that you put it together. Just slap it up on the wall. You're going to need a thousand little nails. Is that anybody's idea of being organized, being in a system? Or would you rather have a beautiful work of art that's already put together for you and you can see this beautiful scene, this beautiful picture? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. You see, in the body of Christ, it says we are members one of another. So think of the puzzle. Your gift is designed to fit to my gift. My gift is designed to fit with her gift and his gift. And together, we make a picture. So I go back to this little story. The time has passed for everybody to make an assumption that somebody's going to do a job that anybody can do, but in the end, you can be guaranteed no one will do it because everybody assumes somebody was going to do it, a job that anybody could do, and no one did it. There was an elder in my church down in the Bronx. Among other things that he actually did, he was basically the doorkeeper. He stood at the door. We had an old brick stone church. I love that building. And he literally stood at the door for the whole service. In the beginning, he'd be shaking people's hands and greeting people. He was the one that would always lead them up to the pulpit after the service and introduce them to me. And I remember as I'm preaching, I'm looking straight to an open door. This is summertime now. To an open door, and there he is, just praising the Lord while I was preaching. But he stayed at the door for people who may come in late. 
He was literally a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. And as the scriptures tell us, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now he's in heaven now. He's long gone. Well, missed those people. But we're going to be reunited soon. Everybody cannot assume somebody's going to do the job. Everybody's got to say, every single individual's got to say, Here my Lord, send me. And here's the blessing. You don't have to do my job. I have to do my job. That's why God made me to do this job here. And he made you to do that job over there and that job over there. And by the way, for those of you who are gifted in one area, don't look at everybody saying, why aren't you doing what I'm doing? You do what you're called to do and let others do what they're called to do. In fact, the same church in the Bronx, I used to pound all the time about studying and heavy studying and so forth. And one of the uh, elders, remember half the church was black, half the church was white. And we came together in Jesus Christ and had a tremendous church. And one of the brothers from Barbados, he would shake his head. No pasta. You're a gifted man. We're not on that level. And I learned something, that that wasn't his calling. I mean, yeah, these people knew the Bible so well, they never opened it when I was preaching. They would quote the scriptures that I was reading. Yet, he gave me a lesson. This older man gave me a lesson that I'm working in my gift and my talent, and not everyone can do that. That's not for anybody. We need now to really understand Everybody cannot make the assumption somebody's going to do the job. We need everybody here around the nation that profess the name of Jesus Christ to say, Here am I, send me. And so let's talk about time. We the people. In 1969, the then rising stars in percussion and in rock music was the band Chicago. And Robert Lamb wrote these lyrics that some of you would be familiar with. Does anybody really know what time it is? And then there's an echo, and the echo says, I don't. Does anybody really care? And the echo goes, care about time. If so, I can't imagine why. We've all got time enough to die. And then it ends with everybody's working, and the echo is, I don't care. If you listen carefully to the album. I don't care, and the echo goes, about time. About time, I don't care. Those little lyrics written by Robert Lamb in the band Chicago in 1969 and um, now it's time to say this. You better care about the time you live in. Because we've got just so much time to get the work done. I believe that God will empower us. I truly do. I have hope. I truly do. I have hope. But if everybody says somebody's going to do it, no one's going to do it, and then there's no more hope. Today you need to say in your heart, Here am I, Lord. I don't know what everybody else is going to do. But here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. And if everybody says that, then everybody has a hand to the plow and the job will not only get done, but God will add to us and more and more. Because, see, this is a message for American Christians. If we, the people, all we're doing is grousing all the time about everything that's wrong, then we're not doing anything at all. But if we, the people who profess Christ, will get to work and do the work God's way, the preaching of the gospel is one of the primary things God has told us to do in the book. And if everybody will, I'm not saying you're going to be a preacher in a pulpit unless God has called you, but this is an exclusive area and not one that you should desire too lightly. In any case, you have your gift and your talent. Hear my Lord, send me. And not looking around about what everybody else is doing and not looking around wondering what everybody else is not doing. Just be concerned with what you're doing. And the question now is begged, what are you doing? Do you know what time it is? Do you care about the time? Oh, I care. 
But you may be the very person that's assuming that somebody's going to do the job. And God is looking at you saying, what will you do when I ask this question, who shall I send and whom will go before us? I don't know, maybe you assume that I'll always be here. And I believe in faith that I will be here for many years. But that's the prerogative of God. And the church cannot stand on a man. It's built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. The church will go on. We, the people, must now put aside that somebody's going to do it. Someone will come along. And understand that this must be on you. Very, very quickly, just a little historical lesson. How many of you know who Samuel Whitmore is? I would be surprised if you did, and I would have had to ditch the illustration. Samuel Whitmore was a farmer when the American Revolution broke out. He was about 80 years old. Now, if you're here today and you're 80 and above, and you come to your porch and the British are there, you say, oh, I'm an old guy, just take my house. Samuel Whitmore began firing. <laughs> Brought down a couple of British soldiers. They didn't take that too well. I want to say he was shot three times. I think it could have been as much as five. Constantly bayoneted, kicked around, mauled, and then they left him for dead, 80 years old. After they left, he got himself back up, dressed his wounds, found himself eventually in Massachusetts and lived to be 97. Well, that's my kind of guy. We're going to take your house. I don't think you are. And you know what? I'm not advocating violence. I'm just simply saying that is how American liberty is perceived by the Samuel Whitmore. Not one hand went up says, yeah, I know who he is. That's an American hero that we don't hear anything about. He's basically saying, you're not taking my farm. You're not taking me prisoner. And he fought. He fought the British regiment or a unit. And he took a few of them out. And they thought they took him out. And he didn't. Samuel Whitmore, look him up. It's an interesting story. In Ecclesiastes 3, at verse 1, it says this, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. Notice the purpose is God's. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. Time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. And the scriptures tell us, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Amen. Does anybody really know what time it is? I want to share you my opinion. It's time to speak. I told you the story when I was in Harlem some years ago. And I think black churches in particular, Spanish churches, well, that can be a little different from church to church. Black churches in particular are very vocal. I mean, the congregation is very vocal. In other words, the preacher doesn't feel like he's standing up there alone. In one church in Yonkers that I preached in, they had the organist. So every time I said something, and God said, Man, you know, they bonk. And it scared me at first until I got used to it. You know, I saw him over there. I didn't think he was going to play. And I'm telling you, bonk, you know. And so you have this kind of um, syncopation. 
And then there in Harlem, as I'm preaching, and this one woman kept getting up and going in the aisle. She said, go ahead, young man. It's the time to speak. It's the time to preach. Not motivational speeches sprinkled with seasoning, as I mentioned to you last week. You can get that from Tony Robbins or Grant Cardone or any of these people, except they don't sprinkle them with scriptures. We don't need motivational speakers in our pulpits. We need biblicists. We need people to give the Bible. We need people who are pastors and preachers and teachers that are truly anointed, not placating people or pandering to their fleshly desires. That's what America needs. And we, the people, must pray as Americans and as Christians. We must pray, God, bring these men along, bring these people along, bring these leaders along. Raise them up. This is now that time. It's not a time to keep silence. No one else is. And that really isn't the proper motivation, but the fact is that very few groups of people of any class or consideration are remaining silent about their proclivities. I, for one, have no intention of sitting back in silence and just letting them roll over us. But to speak and to preach and to pray and to give God my all so that when I leave this planet, I will be able to say I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. I fought a good fight. Any of you have ever been in a good fight? Hmm? Yeah, okay. The fight for the faith is a good fight. It's a tough one, but it's a good one. It's a noble cause. It's a cause for one that we must all join. All of us, every single one of us. And it's a time to speak. In some measure, it's even a time to hate but not to be filled with hatred. It's a time for us to hate what's happening in our country. Yeah. Listen, unless you hate something, you will not do anything about it. Now, I, for many years, hated even the thought of going to the dentist. I used to think first of the various torments and tortures of the Middle Ages and then the dentist. And I avoided the dentist for 20 years, over 20 years. Well, I paid a small price, and I can only say now that I brushed my teeth in my mouth and in my hand. <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about that. Came to church one day, got all the way down the street, realized I forgot the ones I brushed in my hand, I'd go way back. <laughs> you're laughing, but some of you do the exact same thing. I don't know what you're laughing at. You brush your teeth in your hand like this. Well, that hatred, it wasn't really a pure hatred, it was more of a fear. I paid the price for that. And we're going to pay the price, too. I, I hate to speak up. You better learn to love it. You better learn to stand your ground like everybody else is standing their ground on the other side, Amen. the opposite side of what this book teaches, the Bible. Yeah. Time to speak. Yeah. It's a time to hate what we have become. Not just in America. It's time to hate what we've become in the professing church. I'm telling you, I'm developing day by day a hatred for the things I've seen inside the church, the things I've experienced personally. For the people I put trust in that not only let me down, but with thieves and liars and other things. And I say, dear God, whatever may become of me, please don't let me be one of these people. God help me, please. Because I know that I could. I know that I could. I don't want to. And I'm saying to you that you must adopt the same mental attitude that you don't want to be one of those lukewarm Christians found in the Revelation Laodicea that says, oh, well, you know, it's time to work. It's time to get to work. It's time to do something for Christ in Jesus' name. Where does it begin? 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The fear of the Lord. I had a friend of mine who challenged me on that statement there. He says, well, I don't think I should. And this is an educated man, not a young kid. I don't think I should fear God. I said, well, it's understanding what it means. I don't work with power tools as much as I know some of you do, but I've seen enough accidents to respect them. I think I told you the story of the man that came in on a stretcher when I was in radiology as an x-ray technician who was up in the tree and his chainsaw got tangled up in the branch and he kept pulling on it. Remember, he's up in the air now. Kept pulling, 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 pulling. And when he pulled it back, he got it loose. It was still going, whapsh, and it hit right in the nose. Then he fell out of the tree. Just one of those days. When I saw him, the only thing he did was had a little notch out of his nasal bone. It was a wonder that I didn't get his head on a platter. And so I understand what a chainsaw can do for good or for evil. This is the fear of the Lord. When we work with the principles and commandments of God, it works to our blessing. It works to our health of spirit, soul, and body. When we work against the principles of God, we're not getting away with anything. Any more than, you know, there was a space to think between this man's departure from the middle of the tree to the ground. He says, hey, this isn't so bad. Until you hit that sudden stop. In all seriousness, I had a friend that was doing the exact same thing. Played music with him, and um, he was helping a friend in the tree, and he fell out of the tree. But unfortunately, he fell on a stump. He was dead immediately. What's my point? If we expanded the time of a free fall, you say to yourself, well, this isn't so bad. But there's something coming that's going to come to a full halt. In this life, it's called death. And we must invest in eternity so that we can be in a position to give a good report to God. The fear of the Lord is having a great respect for what God can do for the blessing or God can do for the curse. Also in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction very quickly. Let me just say to you, I'm really astonished. The amount of books that I read and the books that are written by secular people on different subjects who have all these answers, and some of them are good answers and some of them are proper answers, but have no knowledge of God. You see, no matter how complex the subject may be, they're articulating on and writing on, they don't factor in God. The problem, uh, reading one author, the problem of artificial intelligence, it's a problem. But God, see, God is still in his heavens. He knows what's going on. He predicted it from the beginning. He's the Lord. He says, this is the end, and here's going to begin. And he knows of these things. God is still in charge. And that's something you must know in the time in which we live. Our hatred cannot be selective. We must learn to hate sin in ourselves, not just in other people. And as mentioned, we're very good at finding out the faults of other people, but that's pretty easy to do. Try finding it in yourself. It's like that blind spot in your mirror. We've all had that experience. You start to drift a little bit more to the middle lane, whatever, and wham, somebody's hitting the horn because they're in that short little space where you can't see them. And that's what sin is. We have these habits and these peculiarities and ways of thinking and so forth. They're hard to see until we pray, God, see if there be any wicked way in me. That's that personal piety I talked to you about last week. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate, is the Lord speaking. And we must learn, if we're going to truly love the Lord, we the people must learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. I think I've told you this years ago, beyond 20. In one of those moments of passion, 
You know, you have these prayers. You go before God. The sun is shining. Everything's going right. You say, God, I'm ready to take on the world. And all of a sudden, God says, fine. And the world comes your way. And you're there looking like a slide from a Beetle Bailey cartoon. Or the man that we had here years ago is, bring it on. Bring Satan on. Whoa. Everybody around says, whoa, whoa. No, no. Mm -mm. He'll come soon enough. Don't invite him. Well, when we get to the place where we begin to hate our own sin, we will be able to understand the problems that the rest of people face. There'll be more humility and there'll be more compassion. As we tell people, here's the steps I took to overcome. And, and God can give you creative ideas beyond the principles written in the scripture to do this. I say, we know what I did and I did this here. And then we're locked like this. Let me go a little further with the puzzle illustration. Let's just throw it all over the floor. And this little piece over here says, well, you don't know my heart. Don't tell me what to do. And this one over says, I got to do what's good for me. And so you know what we don't have? A picture. And you know that my habit uh, used to be anyway. I mean, here's a slot for the piece. And this one, it fits. And it don't fit at first. So I assume that they cut it wrong and I bang on it. And then, you know, the cardboard's coming up and it's get a little lip on it. And then, you know, usually my wife or somebody's pointing, I say, Dad, that don't go there. It's gone. I have found that every time I listened to somebody try to put me in another gift of talent, it failed miserably, I was miserable, and God wasn't happy. But when I keep myself focused on what I'm supposed to do, which is quite varied, believe me, I'm happy, I'm at peace, and I'm of best benefit to the church. We have to learn to examine ourselves. We have got to get to the place where we look at ourselves and begin to hate the evil that's in us. Then we will be able to speak like Jesus would speak, or the apostles, on the subjects facing us, on the topics, and on the troubles facing us. We are familiar with this, the preamble to our United States Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, which at the moment we don't enjoy a whole lot of, domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Now, those that wrote the Constitution, we're talking about us, posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And so we have, as Abraham Lincoln pointed out, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. How many of you today feel that those elected officials in Washington, in New York State here where we are and so forth, are really doing it for us? How many of you feel they're doing it to us? And I'm sharing with you that the problem is a God problem. It's not a people problem. It's a God problem. It's because American Christians have not towed the line. Simple. And preachers have allowed American Christians to not tow the line. It's a heavy burden. You'll never know it. To be a preacher and a pastor who actually cares about the people he pastors. And believe me, it takes your prayers to keep me upright. So we come to Abraham Lincoln and we see him standing on what was a farmland in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And here the bodies have just been removed, the dead and the wounded. And to create this little space where the main speaker, Minister Edward Everett, was going to speak two hours a very imposing preacher of his time, and the president was invited to give a little, you know, a dedication. 
And he goes on in the Gettysburg Address to state that people, posterity, will not remember what we did here. And yet, that speech, Gettysburg Address, is noted by historians to be the most famous speech in American history. He did in 12 minutes what Edward Everett could not do in two hours. And he says this, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And goes on to say this, It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. 19th of November, 1863, arguably the most famous speech ever given in American history, a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and we pray that it doesn't perish from the earth, but right now we stand in danger of that government perishing. And why? Because good men did nothing. Good Christians did nothing. The call for prayer. Every preacher knows this, and most Christians as well. If you want to rate what's the least attended meeting of the week, it's the prayer meeting. It's the prayer meeting. Should I throw in midweek Bible study just for added benefit? Hey, why not? Bible study, now we're in the book of Genesis, and we've been there since, I think, January. Estimations are we're going to finish this study in about the same amount of time the book covers, 50 chapters, which is 2,000 years. <laughs> but it is still the Bible, and we are still studying it, and those that come out are learning something, and that's the great need of our hour. We've got to know the book. Yeah. Now, you don't have to write to me this week and say why you can't be here. I don't need to hear it. I pray for you anyway. I love you. I show up for the Bible study. I don't have a quote to say, okay, you're going to have so many people here, I don't come. You know who I am? I'm here if nobody's here because that's my post and that's my duty and that's what I'm supposed to do and with the help and grace of God that's exactly what I'm going to do now save your applause till Wednesday and just be here and get on your knees today and begin to pray for the church and the elected officials in Washington and so on all the way down Begin to do something today. Today is the day of salvation. Now, let me just go a little further here about we the people and quote to you from Charles Grandison Finney, who in his lectures on systematic theology gave us these words about the connection between Christians and politics in America. He wrote, It is asserted that Christians have something else to do besides meddling with politics. In popular government, he answered, Politics are an important part of religion. No man can possibly be benevolent or religious to the full extent of his obligations without concerning himself to a greater or less extent with the affairs of human government. It is true that Christians have something else to do than go with a party to do evil or to meddle with politics in a selfish or ungodly manner. But they are bound to meddle with politics in popular governments because they are bound to seek the universal good of all men. This one department of human interests, Finney wrote, materially affecting all their higher interests. As we saw last week from the Tocqueville interviewing Americans in the earlier part of this 19th century, this is 1878, 
Americans saw their religion and their government as one, because we're the government. Stop looking at the Capitol building. Stop looking at the governor's mansion. We are the government of the people, by the people, for the people. We're the government. And if we are corrupted, as I mentioned to you from Benjamin Franklin last week, we have no alternative but to have corrupted officials above us, which is precisely what we have. Pastor, are you saying it's my fault? Not necessarily. I'm saying collectively, we've all had a hand in this. And I'm saying to you, I wash my hands of this. I will not be found trying to give cute messages to cute American Christians about cute subjects about how to be more cute. The book is the book. When I see some of my friends this weekend, they ask me questions, I'll give them answers. Do you think I'm going to be shy about it? I'm not going to shout. I'm not going to get up on the top of the thing and make a spectacle of myself. But if other people aren't afraid of sharing their opinions, why would a preacher of the gospel be concerned about sharing the truth? Or not? And neither should you. Just don't be weird. <laughs> be a man or a woman of God, filled with God's spirit, and then you'll always be appropriate for the moment. Now, very quickly, George Washington, refusing the third presidency, gave his farewell address. It's worth reading, by the way, but I want to give you a brief portion that's relevant to our subject. In his farewell speech, he talked about this. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity, happiness. Let it simply be stated. Where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. In that same message, he says to all that have heard it or read it, he says, all but very, very few exceptions, you have the same religion. So again, we see the connection between religion and Christianity in the founding of America. But even that wasn't there. The church has a mission that is coming from another world. My kingdom, Jesus said, is not of this world. So some Christians just divorce themselves from everything, and they go off into space somewhere. But Jesus was, we can say, practical. The sick were healed. The blind had their eyes opened. People needed food. He gave them bread and fish and on and on. This is the spiritual man. Jesus. And now we read that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Who's in us? Christ is in us. Christ is in us. Washington is saying that we cannot believe that Americans will be moral people unless they have this religion. And so now, what do we have, as you know? But just to make the point clear, we told God in the early 60s, you get out of our schoolroom, you get out of our courts, and then we go on and on and on. People want to remove crosses from veterans' cemeteries. Star of David. Here's radical egalitarianism. 
All of us here in this room want one thing, and I don't want it. That's offensive to me. We can't do it. Remove it. Does this make sense to anybody? One kid on the bus doesn't want to go to the amusement park, so nobody goes? I don't know how others grew up, but I grew up, you're going. I don't want to go. You're going. And you know what? I went. <laughs> look at the craziness, and look at the intellectual state of people claiming and proclaiming the most ridiculous things. And why is that? Because sin obfuscates the intellect. Well, they may still register high on IQ test, putting a puzzle together and spatial things and spatial reasoning and math and verbal, but to think clearly about morality, you've got to have the book. You've got to have a preacher with the book, and you have to have people who are saying, here am I, send me. Send me. So that everybody isn't blaming somebody for a job that anybody could have done, and nobody did it. I've told you this so many times. I want to say it one more time, and it won't probably be the last. Why am I here? I don't mean on earth. I mean, why am I here in the woods with rabbits and animals? And I was in the Bronx. And God said, go here. And in a meeting we had with David Wilkerson, sitting there talking to him, I told him, I kind of felt guilty. He had just opened up Times Square Church, and I just mentioned to him, I said, well, you know, in a couple of weeks I'm going upstate. He just had one answer. He said, people everywhere need Jesus. Okay. But didn't answer my question, why? Almost 34 years later, I'm saying, what am I doing? But I'm certain of two things. Number one, God sent me here, so I will be at my post. And number two, it's because of the varied gifts and talents that I have, I assume that God said, you come here. Because most preachers can't make it in this area. Very difficult. But you know what? I say we now. We the people. We're not only going to make it. We're not going to take steps backwards. We're not going to say, oh, well, take the ground. <laughs> because you know it's the last days. Yes, yeah, the last days. And we're going to occupy. Yeah. And we're going to take the ground. Let me say it to you this way. We're just going to kick the devil's butt. Up and down, up and down, up and down. You say, wait a second, you can't say that. I can't. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that is from the book. What are we going to do? I heard somebody quote, it was a song leader. Our song leader quoted it earlier. If my people, which are called by my name. Now we have the name, this was given to Israel. But it's applicable to us. We say, we're Christian. I'm a Christian. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I sing, I'm a musician, I'm a drummer, and I like it all. But songs aren't going to get it done. It's actions. I mean, we actually have to turn from that which we know is wrong. Read Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. We've got to turn from these things. Can't practice them. We would have so much less trouble in America if God would visit us with a reformation and a revival in the churches, starting with preachers, turning around, turning to Christ. Stop going to these seminars that are teaching all these Fortune 500 techniques. All you've done is attract a crowd. Christ is building a church of people filled with his spirit, people that are called by his name. Amen. You know, I've often prayed to the Lord and still do after all these years. You know, if I embarrass myself, it's bad enough I'm, I'm a disgrace to my wife and my children, maybe now my grandchildren. But I've often prayed to the Lord, Lord, please don't let me disgrace you. 
Don't let me be one of those people going down, having been a disgrace and a disappointment, but not only to people, but to God. That's truly one of my prayers. I want to be there, and I want you to want to be there. As we, again, connect like pieces of a puzzle, our gifts and our talents, we, the people, are the government of the United States of America. And as God moves across this nation, I say this by faith, this is not like one of them goofy prophecies. Can I tell you about one? I'll just tell you one. I won't mention his name because I've seen a few of you mention his name. If you want to talk in private, I'll give you the list. This is 20 years ago. Right now there's revival in North Dakota. Right now I see, I said, well, who's this guy? I was watching television with somebody else. I wouldn't watch him. You know what happened that night? Nothing. You know what has happened since? Nothing. Well, I say nothing. No, things got worse. You want prophecy? There's 31,102 verses in the Bible. Start with that. And when you finish exhausting all 788,000 and change words, you'll be pretty used to what prophecy actually is. Because most prophets, they kill. Our prophets get in big limos. One guy gets up there and he says, this is a true story. Looking around, somebody going to take my jacket? I wish I was there. <laughs> I'll take your jacket. Whoops. You know, if you knew his theology, and if you knew who I was talking about, well, his theology, you may be able to guess what it is, but his attitude, he's psychotic. We have people in churches that are psychotic. Oh, she's got the gift of prophecy. Gift of prophecy? I mean, the cop on the corner can figure out that this is mental illness. This is not prophecy. Well, when you know the book and you study the book, you'll know when you actually hear the book being preached. And you'll know it. So what shall we do? This is what we find in the book of Acts. People are baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, God is filling his people. He's filling his church. And the question is raised, men and brethren, what shall we do in this hour of history? What shall we do? Second Chronicles 7.14, I just gave it to you. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Remember this. The gospel is not belief. It never has been belief. It's repent and belief. You're in adultery, you get out. You're a drunkard, you stop. You're a thief, you quit, and so on. That's repent and believe. They go together like the horse and the carriage. It's repent and believe. And those two together, because repentance is predicated on the fact that I believe that Christ is saying, you're in the wrong direction. You're going this way. That's the direction to hell. Here's heaven. Oh, I turned 180, and everybody's walking by me. and said, where are you going? So I'm going to follow Jesus. And they look at you like you're strange. But remember the road, there's only one. There's only one road. I'll tell you how narrow it is. There's times when you're walking sideways, like this, sideways. It can get that narrow, and I know that it does, at least in my case, it's like sideways. Sometimes it's day by day, sometimes it's hour by hour. But we were told, and it's still the way, and it's still the truth, and it's still the life. Don't be somebody who's blaming everybody for a job that anybody could have done. And let us not go down in history as one small branch on the tree of that great organism called the church as the people that did nothing. Rather, let us hold the ground, then take the ground and refuse to give in. Let us be that one that says, here am I, Lord, send me. I believe it's better to live an honorable life than a comfortable one. I truly do. And I believe that that will be bore out when I die, which I hope is later rather than sooner. But I'm convinced to live full out for God won't be fully appreciated until this spirit is released from this body 
and he embraces me, tete-a-tete, face-to-face. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. As we go before the Lord in prayer, I know these times are stressful. They are for me. Let's, again, commit ourselves to being that one. And if we have ten, then there's ten of us, and a dozen, and two dozen, and a hundred thousand together on the same sheet of music. Father, we come before you today. And so everybody blames somebody for a job that anybody could have done, and nobody did it. And everybody wondered why the job wasn't done. God, I don't know whose heart is truly calling out to you right now to say, hear my Lord, send me. I do know this. You will qualify those you have called. You will anoint them. You will gift them. You will give them everything they need to get the job done. Doesn't matter what job it is. No job is too small. And any job that's large and cumbersome, you will give grace, more grace. We praise you, God. We bless you. Again, God, only you know the hearts of men and women whose saying at this very moment in their seat, making an altar of consecration and saying, here am I, Lord, send me. But my prayer, God, is and has been that there is so many, so many, much more than I know, so that we will all be encouraged when we see that great number around this country and around the world who are uncompromising when it comes to Jesus Christ. And now, God, anoint with your spirit something I cannot do. I cannot anoint anybody. Only you can send your spirit and fill your people. And only you know which vessels. But fill them today, Father God. Let every single person here, watching on the live streaming, listening on the radio, be encouraged and strengthened in this hour. For we are not alone. Christ is with us. God is with us. And we can rejoice for the coming kingdom. We bless you, O God. We praise you. For truly your name is great and greatly to be praised. We give you all the glory. Now some of it. All of it. We give you all the honor. We give you all the praise. So I want to just take a minute to give God the thanks this morning. We give you praise. We bless your name, O God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We bless your name. Help us to not only love one another here, but all over the world. The brothers and sisters all over the world. And help us connect to the church of the living God, wherever it's found. And I ask you also, God, to just make this day, regardless of the weather, one way or the other, a day of rejoicing, a day of giving thanks, and a day of action. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.